This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. I didn't know that Americans and Brits and Japanese and Germans were sailing armed gunships down the Yangtze for nearly a century, projecting Western power over China. I never realized how little I knew about this time in history and how much it still affects us today. And I'm talking about the opium wars in China. A river has a big role in this conflict. And it really helped me to appreciate the, the baggage in China's worldview towards Western powers today. This episode comes to you from the mind and research of an author who writes books about rivers. In particular, this is a conversation with Dr. Lawrence Smith, author of his second book, Rivers of Power. This book published in 2020 and explores how rivers have coerced human culture into its modern existence over the course of millennia all around our planet. Dr. Smith is a university professor currently teaching at Brown University in Rhode Island. In addition to teaching, Dr. Smith is also a researcher looking at the future of rivers. As we heard in a recent episode, rivers are thunderstorms, tearing down mountains, and returning to the sea. This episode looks at how rivers create the most ideal settings for human civilization to develop, to thrive, and to simply exist. Rivers are tearing down mountains at that geologic pace of time. And while that slowly happens, we as humans have been at the river's edge for thousands of years. Please welcome Dr. Lawrence Smith. My name is Lawrence C. Smith. I'm a uh, professor and earth scientist. I spent the first 20 plus years of my career at UCLA, where I was a professor in the Department of Geography, using remote sensing uh, and field work to study rivers and uh, northern Arctic and subarctic environments. And in uh, 2019, I took a new position uh, at Brown University in the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society, uh, where I'm continuing to do work studying rivers using satellites and field work, as well as the uh, Arctic and subarctic. In 2020, you published your second book. It's titled Rivers of Power, How a Natural Force Raised Kingdoms, Destroyed Civilizations, and Shapes Our World. Would you tell us what your book is about? Rivers of Power is about rivers and how important and how influential rivers have been to the course of human civilization in ways big and small, uh, how they continue to influence and shape humanity in ways we don't even think of. Every town, it seems, has a river nearby with a story to tell. That river very likely played an important role with some of the developments in the community nearby and is continuing to today and will continue to in the future. And uh, I think this book really celebrates that and pulls it together across history and shows that while the ways in which humans need rivers has changed over time, our dependence on them has always remained, you know, for some big central reasons that have 
persistent through time. And uh, that's um, that's what the book covers. And I learned a lot in writing it. It was really fun. So let's let's hear from you. Would you read from your book on page 278, the second paragraph, starting with racing through? There's a couple of paragraphs, and then we'll talk about those. Sure. Racing through this cycle, like supercharged fuel lines are the rivers. In terms of absolute storage capacity, they are fleetingly small, holding perhaps 2,000 cubic kilometers of water at any given instant in time. For comparison, the total volume of freshwater stored on Earth, mainly in glaciers, ice sheets, and groundwater aquifers, is around 1.4 billion cubic kilometers. But such comparisons are indeed like comparing the volume of a fuel line to the volume of a gas tank. It's the fast, concentrated throughput of water and energy that makes rivers so special and is the prime reason that humans tend to settle next to rivers instead of lakes. Furthermore, rivers carry fresh water on a planet where almost 98% of all water is salty and unfit for drinking or irrigating crops. Rainfall is too diffuse to be readily harnessed. Rivers are thus tremendous physical concentrators of freshwater mass and energy, making them critical supporters of human civilization and biological life. You know, I think it's I think that it's easy to say why humans might live near a river. We can kind of take the basic uh, approach there, but can you just tell us more about why humans choose to live near rivers? Humans choose to live near rivers for reasons both obvious and less obvious. Obviously, the rivers themselves carve flat areas on the landscape. They flood them with sediments and silts, which create flatter, less rocky, highly fertile plains for agriculture. They bring water to the community for drinking and all kinds of uses. Uh, they flush sewage away. They are useful for transportation. More recently, they are useful for practical things like cooling power plants. So there are many practical reasons why uh, rivers are important. They are also important to us in ways that are less obvious. For example, the ancient Romans determined that Rivers, unlike most other natural water bodies, are a public good, and access to rivers should be preserved for the common public good. They had a name for this, flumen publicum. And that idea, which was never applied to things like ponds and springs and groundwater, has carried forward through millennia and through English, the origins of English common law, and now pervades the legal systems in much of the world. So as a result, most river banks, or certainly the rivers themselves, are, are publicly accessible and have public rights of way along them. And that is now proven beneficial in some surprising ways, like creating common spaces for gatherings and even art, as well as a renaissance in urban development, which is creating public green spaces beautiful bike paths and forms of public access to our riverways. This is a transformation that's happening um, all around the world. That's just one example. More generally, if you look at the ways humans 
have used rivers throughout time, throughout history, and in different parts of the world, we find that while the details change, we have always relied on them for five fundamental reasons. For natural capital, for access, for territory, for well-being, and for power. And the exact manifestations actually change, but the overlying theme remains. Like, for example, the Nile River is the origin of one of our greatest civilizations, the ancient Egyptians. The Nile River once supplied natural capital to ancient Egyptians in the form of a reliable annual flood that fertilized Egyptian crops with silt and gave it a precious infusion of water. This flood just rose like a miracle out of the desert in a reliable way every year. Then in the 1970s, that natural capital was tapped in a different way with the construction of the Aswan High Dam. Uh, Egyptians traded in the natural capital of that reliable flood into the natural capital in the form of reliable water supply and hydroelectricity. Now that capital is being tapped upstream by a riparian neighbor, uh, Ethiopia, in their, um, through their dogged construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Meanwhile, waterfront real estate in downtown Cairo, the value of that is, is booming, providing yet another form of natural capital supplied by the river. So the details have changed, but that tapping of the river for economic gain has, has persisted through time. The idea that rivers have remained public capital, I feel like converse to that, you know, where I, where I live in the Western United States, water is limited and we're, we're walking into one of the great low precipitation years, right, right here where I live and farmers are being told they're not going to have a whole lot of water. And that water feels like it's very much not public, that the rivers are, they're, they're very much harmed by reservoirs and irrigation. So I'm curious, does that, do you feel like that concept of flumen publicum, is that concept, is that being used in the parts of the world to include the, the Western U.S. where irrigation dominates river systems? Of course, in, in the West and in many other parts of the world, the water itself, particularly in the West, the water is treated as private property. It's owned through the water rights. But the access, the physical access, is assured even in the West. It's, it's most common that public access, whether by kayak, canoe, uh, certainly if you don't touch the bed of the river or the shores, is, is public. And you can go and you can use and you can enjoy it. It's, it's the, the point, and the, the Romans dealt with this too. If you can get yourself into the river, you've got the access. But getting the access over somebody's land, uh, that, that's, the, that's the key. Your new book, again, is titled Rivers of Power and has the subtitle of How a Natural Force Raised Kingdoms, Destroyed Civilizations, and Shapes Our World. So I'd like to take a dive into each of those. And if you would, give us an example of each of those three layers from your book that helps us understand that. So the, let's go Let's go in the order that we have them in the title. Can you tell us about an example from your book about how this natural force of the river has raised a kingdom? And I want to be clear that that's raising as in growing, R-A-I-S-I-N-G, not raising with a Z. Uh, so if you can, please. As many of your listeners will know, the very origins of human settlements and towns and cities uh, began in semi-arid 
parts of the world along the banks of great rivers, which allowed irrigation of crops, intensification of agriculture, and through that intensification of agriculture, the creation of food surpluses, which could be taxed. With the invention of the tax came the invention of whole other professions and layers of society. With people no longer having to struggle just to eke out enough food for their own survival, this taxation created the opportunity for scribes, priests, soldiers, a ruling class, and the concentration of people freed from the farms to live in more densely packed cities. This happened because of the rivers, and it happened in multiple places on Earth. Ancient Egypt, of course, along the banks of the Nile, an incredibly stable civilization that flourished for some 3,000 years. An even older civilization that we're still learning about, we haven't um, deciphered their writing yet, the Harappan civilization along the Indus River in what is today Pakistan and Western India, the Yellow River Valley in China, and of course, the famous Fertile Crescent, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and their vast sort of grade plain in between them in what is present day Iraq. All of these rivers grew civilizations in surprisingly similar ways, which in turn led to very distinctly human inventions, the invention of the city, invention of writing, some of our earliest legal codes, the origins of science and engineering can all be traced back to these and other civilizations that we're still learning about, including in the new world. Are there samples, examples of civilizations, kingdoms, cities that have grown, been created, not by rivers and, and not by oceans as well, like just out in the dryness? Darned few of them. If you look at the current distribution of the world's great cities, most of which are very old, have been there a long time, more than 90%. And certainly when you get to the biggest cities, virtually all of the biggest cities have a river running through their core. They were founded on the banks of rivers. They were settled on the banks of rivers, despite them being dangerous places to live because of floods. But despite that hazard, it makes so much sense for people to live on riverbanks that we have always done that. And we see this all around the world. And while there are exceptions, those exceptions are rare. And, um, and sometimes they even once had a river on them, but the river of Olsen moved away and they still managed to hang on. But it's the exception, not the rule. The next one here uh, from your subtitle is how rivers have destroyed civilizations. So can you talk about an example from your book, how rivers have destroyed civilizations through, through history? There are many examples of how rivers have destroyed towns and cities. And when I say they destroy towns and cities and civilizations, or what I'm really talking about here are great big, huge floods that come along and just wipe everything out. And um, one of the more interesting examples I found in my research was actually triggered deliberately on purpose by the leader of China, Chiang Kai-shek, in 1938 in mainland China. China was embroiled with a simmering civil war between Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists and Mao Zedong's Communist Party, which was interrupted by a Japanese invasion. 
and the Japanese Imperial Army was advancing on Wuhan. And in an attempt to delay their advance, Chiang Kai-shek ordered the deliberate blasting of the levees holding back the Yellow River and turned the river into the course of the advancing Japanese army. The Yellow River is a crazy river anyway. It deposits over 10 centimeters per year on its bed on a big flat silty floodplain, which means it's constantly elevating itself above its surroundings, which makes it want to flip off in this direction or flip off in that direction, a natural process called an avulsion. Well, this human-induced avulsion turn the river on a completely new course to the ocean. Rather than going north 700 kilometers to the sea, it went south 800 kilometers to the sea, carved out a new valley, briefly slowed the advancing Japanese army, but also suddenly drowned nearly a million Chinese and wiped out nearly 3,000 villages and cities without warning. That event itself was very destructive but it's the aftermath that really became interesting because Kai-shek's government at first denied any responsibility and tried to blame the Japanese and then finally begrudgingly admitted that they had done this on purpose. Times were different then. All populations, including Chinese people, were in general more tolerant of suffering casualties for the good of the country, but this was extreme, to say the least. There was public outrage about this, and... The government, the Nationalist Party, showed very little remorse, did little to help the survivors, did little to help you know, resettle people that had, been, that had survived but had been displaced. And into this political void poured Mao and his Communist Party. And they helped to resettle the victims. And they helped to dig new levees and new flood control measures in the new river path. Because again, every year it was getting flooded again. So it's not like it was just the one flood. It was an unstable situation with people trying to survive. Repeat flooding happening every year. And the communists came and built the waterworks and built the berms and did this and did that. And they curried enormous favor with the people of this valley. And those people, when World War II was over and the Japanese were kicked out, and many years later, the Civil War resumed. And those people now were supporters of the Communist Party, and they helped to join the revolution. And this set in, a, in, in motion a chain of events that led to nothing less than the overthrow of Nationalist Party. Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan, and communists took over the rule of mainland China, where they rule to this day. Is, is the Yellow River today in its original river course, or is it in this, this altered river course now? Yellow River was turned back again into its old course, I don't know, eight, 10 years later, something like that, and is now quite tamed by a series of um, big dams. There's a long history of devastating floods in the Yellow River that killed hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people. And the one I described was different because it was human-induced, but it's one of many throughout Chinese history. In fact, uh, the Yellow River's name uh, in Chinese means the river of sorrow. So let's move into the third portion of the subtitle, which is how rivers shape our world. The very shape of planet Earth to a large degree is governed by the net outcome of a battle between two natural forces, plate tectonics and the water cycle. And plate tectonics pushes up mountain ranges 
and the water cycle attacks it and begins to bring it down through erosion of glaciers, through freeze-thaw action, which cracks rocks and, and creates avalanches of talus and mass wasting, and then the work of billions of tiny streams, which collect water and sediment and move it down, down, down to the sea. And through that fluvial geomorphic process comes the shapes and valleys of mountain ranges, the gradual flattening out of the land downstream, the creation of fertile plains, and the extension of land masses out into the ocean with flat delta deposits that can that extend for hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles. The um, entire South and Central United States, you know, beginning at around Southern Illinois, from there south is ancient river deposit, Mississippi River and its predecessor, a sort of proto-Mississippi River that has been prograding the land out into the sea you know, throughout geological time. It's not an exaggeration to say that over geological time scales, rivers have shaped the very earth that we live on, and they have certainly concentrated human settlement pattern, as we were discussing earlier. I, I, I grew up in Southern Illinois, and we always go down to the Mississippi River. And I bought, you know, in college, I remember studying how there's three geographic, geologic uh, intersections of, uh, of land types there. I struggle with the, the terms exactly, but there's, there's the Southern one coming in, there's the, the Ozarking one, and, the, and, the, and maybe the Plains one coming in from the North. But I have always found it to be such an interesting landscape. I really like the idea that that is kind of the original edge of that, maybe the original mouth of that river, because it feels like it. It's a fascinating part of the country. It was home to a great civilization, the Cahokians, all along the Mississippi River Valley. And they put up pyramids. They were made of logs and earth, so they didn't last quite as, you know, the way the Egyptians have. But it was an incredible civilization with radiating power all, all up and down the Mississippi River Valley and its tributary. It's a really interesting part of the country. Yeah, it's it is. Your book covers the idea that that dams have been built in the United States and Europe for for many many years in the modern era and that these continents and and sets of countries are also working to do some removal of these dams as they've come to understand they're not the best method for extracting water from rivers. Yet around the world, many countries are building dams and because of the modern era, they can build them in these much larger scales. The Three Gorges in China, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam in, in, in Ethiopia, and the one downstream from it um, on the Nile. Your book talks about how Europe and the United States are removing dams, and I hear this in other conversations as well. And there's concern. There's a lot of concern from people who watch rivers and pay attention to the health of rivers and the vitality of rivers and the usefulness of rivers for many reasons, to include the interaction with the ocean and the ocean, the ocean life that comes up the rivers. I'm curious if, if we, I would like to explore this topic by looking at China, because China has this immense history with, with rivers and is a very serious power in the world. If, if you can, would you help us explore this by first talking about China and their relationship with rivers uh, throughout time and even in this modern setting? China is definitely a river country. The origins of its civilization come from the Yellow River and also the Yangtze River to the south. 
the origins of rice agriculture grew along these rivers, the flourishing of the dynasties. There, there has been an entire book written about the interaction of China on its great rivers. So this dependency of the Chinese people on China's rivers is not new. The mega engineering projects that you describe are relatively new. Although you know, plans for them have been around since the, the 50s. They are being implemented on a massive scale, both with truly huge projects like the Three Gorges Dam and the, the huge south to north water diversion project, which is essentially creating, has already created two big canals routing water from the southern end of the country to the northern end of the country. Those are basically completed. And a third arm, which would divert the headwaters of the Yellow River closer to the Tibetan Plateau. And that part of the project will be finished sometime around 2050. The upper Mekong River flows through Chinese territory, has recently had many dams put across it, uh, which has significantly altered the downstream flows in the lower Mekong uh, in Southeast Asia to the point where during a drought year, a few years ago, Vietnam had to basically beg China to please release some water from the dams upstream because the, the rice farms on the Mekong River Delta were, were suffering horribly. So there is no question that China and other developing countries are embracing big river mega engineering projects at a scale the world has never seen. That makes what America did in California, for example, my former home state seems small in comparison. Take, take a minute and tell us more about these canals in China. The, the, the two of them are finished. The third is underway and, and will be finished in, in about 20, 30 years. Tell us about the purpose of those and the volume that they carry. Because I, you know, I think that we, where I live and I think in a lot of the world, we get used to water being diverted. But I feel like these might yep. be greater diversions. These are big. I spent quite a bit of time researching China's South to North Water Diversion Project, which is a grand, massive vision of transferring water from the wetter south of the country to the drier north of the country, uh, using three long um, routes consisting of new canals, some old canal, including part of the ancient Grand Canal, which is a very ancient waterway in China, even some underground tunnels, reservoirs and diversions. It's, it's just an incredibly grand project, which is mostly completed in the eastern part of the country and still underway in the western part of the country. This project, I mean, we're talking about a half a century building plan with an estimated cost uh, approaching $100 billion. It will take longer to build and cost more money than the Three Gorges Dam. When it's done, it will connect the Yangtze with three other river basins and divert around 45 billion cubic meters of water annually from the southern part of the country to the northern part of the country. To put that number in this perspective, that's more than triple California's state water project and Central Valley project combined. It's more or less equivalent to the flow of an entire new yellow river flowing from south to north across the country through these systems. Most of the water is going up towards the Beijing, Tianjin area. The purpose is there's not enough water in the north of the country, which is where some of the biggest cities are. So it's municipal water supply, it's agriculture, and it's uh, replenishing 
the Yellow River, which is which is tapped out. It's putting more water into the Yellow River system and also bringing water directly to Beijing and Tianjin. In fact, it goes under the Yellow River at one point. There's actually a river going under a river. It's not even the biggest diversion plan out there. Uh, India is at this very moment planning out an even more audacious and ambitious scheme, which would essentially replumb rivers across the entire subcontinent. Uh, the peninsula and divert headwaters in the Himalayas and its foothills called the National Rivers Linking Plan. And it's an even grander vision than what China has, has implemented. We are now at a place in our engineering capacity to just reconfigure drainages at, at a scale that the earth has never seen before. Another one is being talked about in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, the divert flow out of the Congo River Basin up towards Lake Chad which would perhaps stabilize some of that shrinking desiccated disaster, but also create environmental problems as well as some environmental benefits. I mean, there's all kinds of pros and cons to these projects, but I think the real point here is that we are now doing this, especially in the developing world. In great contrast, the developed world, which went through this dam building boom a century ago, is now looking at removing dams, at least small dams, little dams, the little guys, the ones that have um, become obsolete, they've reached the end of their design lifetimes. They're filling in with sediment. They are becoming uh, legal liabilities. And there's a growing number of partners willing to work with the stakeholders and owners of these things to decommission them safely and hopefully restore the rivers to a free flowing state and enable things like fish migrations once again. So these two movements have taken place uh, at different scales, to be sure. The world is still building far more dams than it's taking down, and it's building far bigger dams than it's taking down. But in the developed world, the U.S., Western Europe, Canada, Russia, we're not building these huge projects anymore. That stopped, and we're eyeing the removal of the small ones. But it's a totally different scale. You're starting to touch on one of the pieces I'm curious about, and that is, while these countries like China, India, other places in Africa are building and engaging in this, this large-scale dam building on rivers and, and, the, and the rerouting of water, it feels like and seems like they are, they are going to learn from the lessons that we have suffered through in the United States and in other, in other countries that dams can be valuable to economic and community growth and simultaneously and possibly slower they can be devastating to economies and to communities as well, and then to ecosystems, which really the ecosystem challenge probably drives the other two challenges. How are these other nations, these other places in the world, how are they learning and what are they learning from the, these three challenges, these economic challenges, ecological challenges, and community challenges that, that others have suffered through? Great question and a great topic. And a complicated question and a complicated topic. Lessons are being learned, or some lessons have been learned, particularly with regard to the need for better sediment management. For example, these are so-called pass-through technologies. This is especially relevant for rivers with reliable water flow, like the Mekong, lower Mekong, uh, which you know, flows reliably all through the year thus allowing construction of low head dams, not the towering, you know, Hoover dams of the West, 
that swallow up three, four years of river flow, you know, at a time. But these are low head dams that don't have tremendously huge capacities, but run all the time. And there are ways of allowing the sediment, or at least some of the sediment, to pass through the dam. And this is really important to, for preventing erosion downstream, for allowing sediment, which is a resource, to flood and get back into the, you know, onto the floodplain to replenish those nutrients, to um, prevent erosion and to counter subsidence, which is the other thing that happens on deltas, for example. So I think that is one area that is looked at much more carefully than it was 100 years ago. But it doesn't work everywhere. In a huge project like the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, for example, I mean, it's, it's very old school in the sense that uh, it's going to swallow up the Blue Nile and it's going to hold it. And no boats are going to get over that thing and no fish are going to get through that thing. And so I don't think we can say universally that the developing world has learned from the mistakes of the early 20th century US and Canada and Russia. And these dams are just a totally different animal. It depends very much on, on the situation. And there are some reasons for optimism, but I don't think overly so. The other area where I think there has been improvement, although it's always under strain and can never be taken for granted, is in the area of transboundary governance and cooperation, which tends to be more the norm with these big projects now, because we're talking about big rivers that have upstream riparian stakeholders and countries. And the trend is away from multilateral action. But even that has its exceptions, in particular the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which I actually spent quite a bit of time writing about because it's very interesting. Egypt did not want that dam to be built and did all they could to prevent Ethiopia from getting any international backing to build it. The World Bank, you know, sovereign wealth funds of nations, you name it, everywhere Ethiopia went trying to get funding for this, to help with this project, they were stymied. And rather than stopping the project, it turned into basically a source of national pride within Ethiopia. And they said, the heck with all of you, we're going to fund it ourselves. And they passed domestic bond measures and just a real, like, um, you know, from the people I talked to about it, just some, some crazy stuff, like government employees expected to quote, donate a month of their salary towards the project and, you know, rah, rah, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And, and you know, depending on who you talk to, um, it has really become a source of national pride. It's become politicized, where this is something that they're very proud of, and it it is a symbol of Ethiopia's uh, rising importance and um, power in the region. Um, so that would be a counterexample of the sort of international cooperation trend that I'm talking about. And as a result, the GERD, as it's short, G-E-R-D, is a is now a source of international tension. I mean, uh, last fall, President Trump made sort of a passing remark that maybe the Egyptians should blow it up. And he wasn't the first to mention this. Uh, you see, some, a few years before, some Egyptian politicians were caught on open mic, open mic discussing exactly that outlandish you know, possibility. Um, the US, uh, just a few months ago, cut off aid to uh, Ethiopia because they're um, filling up the dam without an agreement in place. And when you fill up this dam without letting any water out, remember this poses an existential threat to, to Cairo, to, to Egypt downstream, because they, they rely on the Nile for you know, almost almost 100% of their water. And 
this dam is so big, it could literally just swallow up the biggest tributary of the Nile for, for several years if releases aren't, aren't managed right. So, yeah, uh, I, don't, I wish I could say we've learned from the mistakes of the past and everything's moving forward, you know, wonderfully, but that is simply not the case. It's true in some areas and, and not true in others. Would you go into talking about what China is doing on the environmental protection side? The river chiefs, this new policy. Sure. Unlike the United States, where we have, this is a democracy. We have a process. We have lobbyists. We have, you know, opportunities to, for dissent. We have freedoms to oppose decisions, right? You know, while China has some of those things, it is in a much stronger position to just declare policy and make it so. And this could be bad. Uh, for example, Dams can be ordered and they'll be constructed without the years of environmental review and public comment that a big project would require in the United States or Europe or Canada, for example. But it can also be good. For example, um, just a few years ago in 2017, the leader, Xi Jinping, just declared some sweeping big programs for river protection in China. Boom, it's, it's done. China's pollution problems have been as bad as the United States was in the 1970s when the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught on fire. It wasn't even the first time it caught on fire. It had been catching on fire for many years. But something about the times, uh, the American people had reached a point where the grand bargain between jobs and industry at the price of environmental degradation, that grand bargain was no longer good enough anymore. And politically, the United States reached a point where that wasn't okay anymore. And there was a change, in fact, President Nixon, you know, really laid out in his first State of the Union speech a sweeping plan to clean up the American waterways. I mean, it's just staggering. Imagine a, any president now, especially a Republican president, coming out today and proposing, you know what, we're going to spend 1% of GDP on cleaning up the environment and our waterways in America. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, that's what President Nixon did in his first State of the Union speech in 1970. And a few years ago, we're not doing that in the U.S. anymore, but China is. And a few years ago, uh, Xi Jinping basically gave their version of the State of the Union speech. And I found the transcripts of it, and I went through them, and it was almost structurally, almost word for word, tracking what President Nixon said in his speech. And the same, the same things, like we need to spend a bunch of money, we need to feed up our rivers, we need to have better enforcement. And we need to create a centralized agency to oversee environmental monitoring and testing. In other words, an EPA. And that is exactly what President Nixon did. President Nixon created the EPA. He created it by executive order in his first term. And China is now doing that. And they are, like all things uh, in China, as I think you were alluding to, they, when they do things, they, they do it big. And um, so he declared that there would be no more heavy industry along the Yangtze River uh, for certain, not everywhere, but in certain areas, find as these ecological red lines where no new heavy industry could go in. And in fact, a bunch of existing heavy industry would be banned and be removed. Um, and he also created something called the River Chiefs, basically a job where every river would have a, or multiple quote river chiefs. These are people whose sole job is to go and to, um, monitor enforcement of existing laws, because China actually has a lot of environmental laws on the books. They're just not enforced. In the year, uh, the first year of the program, they hired over 200,000 
river chiefs. So can you imagine 200,000, even correcting for the population difference? So, you know, it's uh, roughly a fourth. Can you imagine President Biden or President Trump hiring 50,000 river monitors are going to patrol the rivers of the United States and make sure nobody's breaking dumping laws? Can you imagine such a thing? I can't. But that's what uh, that's what's going down in the in in China at this very moment. Huh. I feel like that is the that is some of the the push to possibly learn from the mistakes of the United States. So, and while they are doing these massive projects, and they do have a billion plus people to hydrate, uh, they are also potentially learning from us. We'll see. We'll see. But I think there's there's reason for optimism about Chinese environmental policy. And they're doing a lot of damage, but they're also doing a lot of good. And uh, it, 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 it's not a simple thing where you can just say, oh, you know, it's all bad. Or it, it's, it's encouraging in, in, in many ways. Hey, folks, this is Sam Carter, your host of The River Radius. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I thoroughly enjoy building them and absolutely hope you also are enjoying listening to them. In addition to your support that comes from you listening, reviews of this podcast are incredibly helpful. In your podcast app, you can write a review of this podcast. This helps other curious podcast listeners hear from you about why you value the River Radius. You can tell them things like the quality of the show, the length, the stories, the guests, the things that you learn. Would you please... Submit a review about the River Radius. Thank you for your support. So you you wrote a book. You've written two books. Um, I always find authors fascinating because I struggled so much to write a simple paper in high school and college. Struggled meaning it just it just didn't grab me. And I thought, oh my gosh, five pages. Or in college, you know, twenty or thirty pages, and it was just this this epic adventure. But then here you are writing a book that's three hundred plus pages that's full of information it's not you know you're not double spacing triple spacing like i might have or increasing the font to take up more space you are really adding in the material in that effort in your research in your writing are there things that are there topics that were that have become favorites for you also things that were surprising to you maybe they're one and the same what what what, do you have any of those favorites and, and surprising pieces you can share with us Yes. I, well, first of all, let me just say that your uh, grind of writing experience in high school and college is pretty much exactly what it is for me. And I think most other authors, it is not easy. It is totally a grind. It's just sort of butt and chair and every day and plugging away at it. And there's nothing magical or, you know, it's not like you get, <laughs> it's just a real pain. I, I don't recommend it to anybody. Um, now, with regard to surprises, there are many surprises I encountered in researching this book. We could have a whole other podcast, you know, highlighting some of them. Um, I'll share one of my personal favorites, which was surprising to me because I, I, re- I never realized how little I knew about this time in history and how much it still affects us today. And I'm talking about the opium wars in China. And a river has a big role in this conflict. I didn't know that Americans and Brits and Japanese and Germans 
were sailing armed gunships down the Yangtze for nearly a century, projecting Western power over China. It really helped me to appreciate the baggage in China's worldview towards Western powers today. It helped me to get a handle a little bit better on where they're coming from. And, you know, take the Civil War in the U.S., for example. That war lasted four years and still divides the country today. Even today in 2021, removal of Confederate statues had to happen in the dead of night because there could be protests one way or the other about how people feel about that. There, there are still wounds from that civil conflict today in the last four years. The same thing happened in China, but imagine almost a century instead of the length of one on-time college degree. Uh, imagine if in America today, if instead of the country running gun ships up the Mississippi weren't our fellow Americans, but were um, from some other country. Imagine if they ran those gunships up and down the Mississippi, not for four years, but for almost a century. That projection of power deeply humiliated and impacted, and still does today, the psyche and their worldview on, on Western powers. And the, and the Yangtze River was the key way in which it's done deep into the interior of the country. There were also gunships in port cities all around the coast, but it was the Yangtze and that militarization all throughout the country that reached the interior populations. That section of the book that I wrote has stuck with me more than any other part. Yeah, I, the, it was a fascinating part of the book. I've, I've heard of those, I think simply because I studied that kind of stuff in college and then taught it in high school when I was a teacher. And so I was able to dive in, but never through the in-depth filter of the river view. And and being a boater myself and now studying rivers in this unique way through these podcasts, that that view it was it's 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 like this secret navigation inside a country that so many people don't know about that's happening. It's very covert and quiet for a hundred years. It's really interesting. Yeah. It makes me want to just say for that that piece alone, this book is so worth the read. And obviously, there's so many other layers to it, but that that component was, I think it was one of those things where I I, I, I kind of had to slow read that section, in fact, because it was so, uh, there's so much to absorb. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. I'm glad you liked that part, too. <laughs> you're, <of> favorites. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, it was, there's so many pieces to it. So you this book came out in 2020. That's about a year ago since you released it. I'm curious if you have new thoughts and new questions that have emerged now about rivers since you've published this book. Oh, yes. Uh, there are many. I mean, again, human dependence on rivers is more intense than it's ever been for all the reasons we've described, for capital access, territory, well-being, power. We still need them more than ever. And the power plays are still moving forward at a breakneck pace. Um, I'm thinking especially of the GERD, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which is a in, even more volatile situation now than it was when I wrote the book, because Ethiopia is engaged in a, basically a civil war in the northwest part of the country. Talks have more or less broken off completely with uh, Egypt, and Egypt and Sudan. 
the dam is being infilled. Um, there's a bit of, uh, you know, Ethiopia is obviously distracted right now with its own conflict. The U.S. has stopped giving aid to Ethiopia over this issue. And the, the entire situation has um, become an order of magnitude even more tense than it was when I, I wrote this book. And um, right here in the U.S. and other major cities, on a happier sort of note, the, um, the trend of urban revitalization and construction of green space along urban river cores is moving full steam ahead, uh, including the Los Angeles River, New York City, and even many smaller Rust Belt cities are now looking at the, their old, formerly industrial riverfronts, which are now often derelict and abandoned or underutilized and realizing the benefits of converting these properties into to green spaces and bike trails and reconnecting urban people with, with rivers. And rivers themselves are getting, you know, they're, they're much cleaner than they were 30 years ago. And so, um, you know, the opportunities for a reconnection in many of our cities is, is promising. And, and that has continued to advance since I wrote the book. So there's just three, three examples, there are many others. So you are a professional river researcher. I don't know if I've ever said that about anyone, but I think that uh, you definitely fall into that category. Also a river educator, and uh, you work at the university level. Uh, and your research is not exclusive to your home country of the United States, but is definitely an international observation and research. Just by default, you have colleagues across universities, which I would think extends across continents, also doing river research. This is different than my view of rivers has been. You know, when I started this podcast, this was about this was about river stories from the river boating side of having fun. And and the very first episode of this podcast uh, is recorded by a campfire with you know fifteen people around it, where these these folks are telling this just really incredible story about a river trip interacting with high water, and it's a great story. But it's this podcast has grown into this other capturing of river information. For the sake of myself <laughs> and for the listeners, I'm wondering, can you tell us what's going on in this professional river researching education world where you hang out in these universities, these authorships? What are th what, what's being talked about and worked on at, in those places? There are many things being talked about and worked on in river research in universities in the U.S. and around the world. I understand you had... Dr. Montgomery on your show, he's a world leader in the study of woody vegetation and streams, for example, and their impact on salmon success and salmon migrations. River restoration, both in the context of dam removals and, and just in the context of improving river health more generally, is another very active field of research and activity in universities in the U.S. and around the world. A extremely hot and new area in which I am deeply involved, and also um, many of my former students who are now professors at University of North Carolina, University of Massachusetts, Hong Kong University, is satellite information about rivers. And I'm very involved and have been for almost 20 years now with a new forthcoming um, NASA satellite mission called SWAT, which will launch next year. And SWAT, for the first time, will map water levels in all of the world's rivers and reservoirs and lakes around the whole planet and post those data online for free. This is revolutionary from a scientific point of view. 
and from a, a water management and geopolitics point of view, because in many parts of those wor the world, those data are either not collected at all, or if they are collected, they're considered, they're, they're garden state secrets. They're not shared. And this is very true even in, you know, open democracies like the U.S. or things like inland reservoirs, which the USGS doesn't monitor those and post, post water levels and reservoirs online. Those data are not available. They're held by municipalities and so forth. The SWAT satellite will change that. And another new satellite that NASA just launched in 2018 called ISAT-2, uh, we are using those data right now to track water levels in reservoirs around the planet. And in fact, just this year, a couple months ago, we published a paper in Nature, which documents this process using ISAT-2, which is a laser. This is a laser firing laser echoes down from space. We use it to map water levels in reservoirs and also rivers and lakes around the planet. And by comparing the two, we quantified for the first time the human impact on the surface water cycle uh, in rivers and reservoirs, which are you know dammed rivers. And we found that humans have now commandeered about two thirds of all surface water variability on earth, including remote places where no people live. And in fact, if we look where people do live and where water resources are scarce, like the Western US, like Southern Africa, like the Middle East, we have basically commandeered 100% of it. And what the significance of that is, what that means is we have, to an incredible degree, we have taken control of the surface water cycle on Earth. And on a practical level, it means there's nothing left to tap. There's nothing left to capture in many of the most water-stressed parts of the world. We cannot build more dams and get our way out of this problem. We've already captured all of it. And the reach of this phenomenon even extends to places you wouldn't expect it to, like the subarctic in Russia. I mean, you think, oh, no problem there, right? No, those big projects there, they're capturing these flows as well. So we did not know that until a couple of months ago. And it's thanks to this new satellite technology, which is collecting and distributing river level and river discharge data all around the planet, providing a wealth of data that hydrologists have never had before. And this is a very interesting and fast-breaking area of research, and it's one that I'm deeply involved with, and uh, many of my students and former students and postdocs are all are working in this area. I want to ask how rivers are doing in the world. And this is a question I asked Dr. David Montgomery a few episodes ago. There's a recurring theme to it because it's part of the mission statement of this podcast is to understand that and to do our best by rivers, at least from the podcast side. And, I, and I'm thinking about an interview I just finished where the, this group of three women have been boating the Sacramento River from its source at Mount Shasta, the Klamath Mountains in North Central California, down to the San Francisco Bay. And they feel a sense of urgency. They express this in the reflection that they do after their trips over. There's a sense of urgency around the health of that river, the use of water in California, the declining volume that exits the river into the bay, the push-in of the salt water into the delta, the change of that ecosystem there. I hear that story and I just think, oh man, we are, we as a human culture are really maxing out our ability to live on this planet. Not necessarily today, 
but maybe down the road. And I'm a bit of a dramatic person around that stuff. So sometimes I need to ask someone like yourself how we're doing. You know, I hear you're talking about all these projects happening that we have commandeered all the water that we can have on this planet that there's no more to find. How 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 are rivers doing? Are we are we circling the drain as a society or are we are we doing okay? What what's your perspective on all this? My perspective is perhaps a bit more positive than yours. From a quantity of water perspective, river water is not oil. It's not a finite resource. It is endlessly recycled and rapidly within a matter of days through the hydrological cycle. Therefore, the extent to which we are you know, tapping our rivers and running them dry and so forth is really just a measure of how efficiently or inefficiently we are using that cycle. The challenge is that our rising population, but especially industrialization, which means that much faster populations in India and China, as they develop and industrialize and become more wealthy, they consume more water. Even if you don't increase the number of people, the water requirements for having more things, more clothes, more electronics, eating more meat, having more energy, there's water tied up in all of that. So the stresses and the challenges are great. That said, there is opportunity for redemption because it's endlessly recycled. As long as we don't pollute it too badly, we always get another shot at it. And there are some really interesting and exciting big ideas to mitigate these serious challenges that you raise. And uh, for example, um, I write about this a bit in Rivers of Power, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which is the biggest colossus you've never heard of. This is like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like just a, a colossal water management umbrella organization that has done more to transform water resource use in California, including the Sacramento River up north, where the person you were just talking about is feeling the sense of urgency. Jeff Keitlander, who's running the map, probably has as much to say over the future of that river as just about anybody on earth. And his vision is to start recycling river water endlessly within LA and never let it leave the city. And he's doing it right now with a huge, big investment to essentially recycle sewage output from the treatment centers in LA. And that water is very clean. When it comes out, you can, you can drink it. It goes right back into the rivers anyway. We already do this. We take water out of the rivers. We consume it. We run it through our municipal systems. We poop in it. We treat it. And we put it back in the river. And it goes back down to the river and gets taken out by the next town. We're already recycling the water many times over before it reaches the coast. Well, Kyle Neuer wants to do that uh, underground. His vision, which has already begun with a pilot demonstration at the Carson Sewage Plant in Carson, California, is taking that effluent and pumping it through pipelines up to an aquifer that's already in use further north and putting it into the aquifer, where it's already being pumped out by millions of people. Treat it, clean it, put it back in the aquifer, pull it out again, use it over and over again. I mean, this is the equivalent of, you know, another uh, Owens Valley aqueduct just running eternally within the city. That would do a lot to help the Sacramento River these kinds of big ideas. And so, and there are small ideas as well at the local, more granular scale, which makes some differences. 
as long as pollution has been checked, we get other opportunities. And pollution problems have been improving in the developed world since Nixon trotted out, you know, his big vision in 1970 and, and his predecessors before him, which got it, the ball rolling. Things are improving here. They're getting worse in other parts of the world. It's an uneven um, progression that's taking place. But I, I am I am not filled with dismay. Not yet. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're not. It, hel- it helps me. So my my last question, uh, as I was thinking about this interview yesterday, and I'd already sent you the outline that I wanted to cover, I was thinking about how there's this elongated partnership between humans and rivers through time, which is what your book goes into, and and the consistency that rivers have is that they are constantly recycling themselves. They are doing this water cycle again and again and again, moving water across the landscape. The humans are recycling stories. And, and I think that there's great value in that, that, that we can, can tell stories again and again and create new stories. And that is such of, of, that is of such great value to us as, as the simple and complex creatures that we are. So you have written this book. You have come become very familiar with rivers and uh, and storytelling in this uh, in this very academic way, but in this very friendly way. What is what? How did you get here? How, what is your story with rivers that brings you to a place of understanding them, appreciating them, speaking about them? I have loved rivers since I was 11 years old, when as a city boy from the core of Chicago, my parents would send me to my grandmother's house in upstate New York, in northern New York, for the summer, for a month each summer. And during that month, I would explore and play and fish along the Indian River in um, northern New York State. And... The hours I spent watching eddies, hunting for crayfish, throwing a line out for a smallmouth bass were so valuable and influential on me. And it wasn't just about catching the fish or whatever, you know, whatever I was nominally there on the river trying to do that day. It was those hours taught me how to be at peace alone without the need for constant simulation from exterior things. They taught me to see beauty in simple things and to retain my curiosity about the natural world. And that carried with me throughout graduate school. Although it took me a while to figure that out. I thought I wanted to be something else, but you know, I came back to the earth sciences and all of my graduate work was spent studying rivers. And uh, now as a scientist and professor myself, I take boats to remote rivers and do river studies and ADCPs and satellites. And I, I just, my journey started as a child and is still uh, moving forward today. These are incredible features in their own right and incredibly important to humanity as we know it and so i'll just be studying them until i drop i guess 
A hydrologic cycle size thank you goes out to Dr. Lawrence Smith for this in-depth exploration of his book, Rivers of Power, and of river culture through time and in the modern era. You can learn more about Lawrence, his work, books, and videos of his research in the show notes. You can find The River Radius on Instagram and Facebook, where additional river content is published weekly. You can also find more information on our website. Those links are also in the show notes. You can contact us anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. My name is Sam Carter. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. Uh, let me find my notes here. How long do you like your answers? Because uh, do you like me to go on for a bit? Do you like them kind of short? I can ramble or I can keep them short. March of 2020 was a great time to be releasing a book about rivers. Oh, yeah. That was on the foremost of everybody's mind. Cheers. Yeah.